We're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 33 this morning. Isaiah 33, the whole chapter. Let me remind you as we begin that this is God's good and kind and gracious word to you this morning. Ah, you destroyer who yourself have not been destroyed. You traitor whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourselves up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers. As locusts leap, it is leapt upon. The Lord is exalted, for He dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and He will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie lie waste. The travelers cease. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert. And Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift up myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff. You give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Hear you who are, de- who are far off that I, what I have done, and you who are near acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in tongue that you cannot understand. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feasts, Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help in understanding His word. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for giving us 
uh, this word today that reveals to us how you respond uh, to our repentance. Uh, And Father, I pray that you would arise today, that you would pour out your spirit among us, that we might repent, see our brokenness before you, that we might live righteously for the sake of Christ. Father, I pray that you would do these things not for our sake, but ultimately for the sake of Jesus Christ and for his glory. We do pray this in his name. Amen. Back when we, whenever we began Isaiah, this, this series, I, I realized that my understanding of the Assyrians and the Assyrian Empire was lacking. So I went back and I did some study on the Assyrians. Uh, and something interesting came out of my study. Uh, in the second millennium B.C., uh, the Assyrian Empire was growing tremendously. Uh, and they, they were growing in the Middle East and they were growing in prominence and strength and all of these things. And then out of nowhere, they seemed to, to fade away into nothing. And they weren't heard from again for a few hundred years. Uh, and then once again, the Assyrian army, uh, the Assyrian Empire rose to prominence. And that's what's happening in the book of Isaiah. The Assyrian Empire is growing and they're going through and they're attacking all of the different countries and nations in the Middle East and they're overrunning them in power and might. Uh, But what's interesting also is that just as the Assyrian Empire was growing in prominence in the first millennia BC, just like as in the second, they faded away and they went away. Now, uh, historians have ideas about why the, the uh, Assyrian nation came to prominence and why it also uh, fell away. But one thing they admit over and over is they really don't know. They don't know why the, this very strong empire, really why it grew to prominence and why it, it faded away and why it was overrun and destroyed itself. It's seemingly the height of their power. Why did it happen? It's amazing to me that in all the resources that are devoted to the study of these questions, why do nations rise and fall? Ultimately, his, uh, historians don't have a good answer to it. Same can be said of the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the, the Medes and the Persian. Pretty much every empire that's ever existed. Historians have these theories about why the nations rise and why they fall. But at the end of the day, they say, we don't know. They don't know why these things happen. Again, after all of the resources that are devoted, all the monies, after all of the the study that these college professors and academics devote to it, they don't have a definitive answer. Now, the reason why they don't have a definitive answer is because they tend not to trust the most important source and the most reliable source that we have, and that's God's Word. God's Word tells us why nations rise and fall, but academics tend to say that this is nothing more than religious propaganda. And, they, and so they don't go to this word. But, but God tells us for sure why nations rise and fall. And what's happening in this chapter today is we see one of these episodes where the Assyrian Empire begins to fade away. Nations fall, and here's the answer, because the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth decide when nations rise and when they fall. And Isaiah teaches us that today. Now we're picking up Isaiah's prophecy at a turning point for the Judeans. Now for months as we've been going through these many chapters of Isaiah, we have seen how the Judeans have run away from Yahweh. They have refused to repent. They have refused any help from the Lord over and over. 
Instead, they've gone to the nations around them. They've gone to Israel and Syria above them. They've gone to Egypt below them. They've gone to all of these different places. But what's happened? The Syrians, the Israelites were overrun by the Assyrian armies. The Egyptians, they find out they can't do anything for them. And so what do the Judeans do? Well, King Hezekiah, he has a plan. You can go and you can read this in 2 Kings chapter 18. And I hope you do that later on. 2 Kings 18, Hezekiah says, I know what I'll do. Since Assyria is at my doorsteps, I will invite them into Jerusalem and I will give them whatever treasures we have. And I'll save my people and they will go away if they accept the agreement. Well, the Assyrians, they make that deal. But then it all fails. It comes to nothing. There was only one thing left for the Judeans to do. They had to go to the Lord for help. But there's a question that remains. Will they really now, after so long, go to the Lord? And even if they do go to the Lord, will the Lord accept their repentance? It's taken them a long time to come. We're going to see and answer those questions through three points this morning. First of all, we're going to see God's response to repentance. And you see that in verses 1 through 6. God's response to repentance. Secondly, God's response to brokenness in verses 7 through 12. And then thirdly, God's response to righteousness in verses 13 through 24. Uh, So let's begin with God's response to repentance in verses 1 through 6. Again, if you go back and you read 2 Kings 18 and 19, you're going to get all the background information to this, uh, to what's happening here in Isaiah 33. Uh, but you, you don't have to go back to those historical chapters to get a sense of what's going on. Because in this cycle, this is the fourth cycle of Isaiah, uh, you can actually see and get a sense of what's going on uh, at this historical moment. Go back to chapter 28, the first chapter in Isaiah And what you'll see in chapters 28, 29, 30, and 31, all these chapters begin with the same word. In my translation, it begins with the word, ah. That's a terrible translation. Uh, It can mean ah, but we use ah like, ah, I see what the point is, but that's not what's being said here. The, The better translation is woe. Woe as in cursing. God is pronouncing a woe on a certain people. So look at 28. The woe is on Ephraim and on on Jerusalem. God's people, Israel and Judah. God is pronouncing a woe on them. Chapter 29. Ah, Ariel, 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 the city where David encamped. The fortress of David in the city of Jerusalem. Once again, a woe pronounced on his people. And then chapter 30. Ah, stubborn children. Who is he talking about? Woe, stubborn children. He's talking about his own children. He's cursing his children for their disobedience. And then chapter 31. Woe to those who go down to Egypt. Well, the Judeans had gone down to Egypt for help. 28, 29, 30, 31, and 32. All of these chapters, God is pronouncing a woe on his own people. But then there's a shift that occurs. Look in chapter 33. Woe, you destroyer. Who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor whom none has betrayed. Who is he talking about? He's talking about the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the ones who betrayed. The Assyrians were the ones who were the traitors. 
See, the shift that's occurred is that God has said, He's been pronouncing woes on His children, but now something has happened. Here's what King Hezekiah had done. He said, okay, we have a lot of wealth in Judea. Um, Recently, we've been doing a study on 2 Chronicles, and you discover that the inner part of the temple of Israel was overlaid with 45,000 pounds of the purest gold that you can imagine. 45,000 pounds of gold. Okay? That was just the temple, not to mention all of the different items of gold that were kept in the storehouses and all of the different items of gold that were for the king and all the wealth that Judea had. And what Hezekiah said was, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have the Assyrians come in and I'm going to tell them, I'm going to pay them off. Take all the gold, spare the people. That was his plan. And the Assyrians did. They sent these envoys in with their carts and with everything that they could to just rip all of the gold off the temple and take all of the gold everywhere. And they did. And they went out of the temple. They went out of Jerusalem. They went to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria said, well, how wealthy were they? And they said, they had a lot more wealth they didn't give us. And he said, okay, well, let's go get it. He went back on the deal that he made with King Hezekiah. And he said, I, you have more wealth. I'm going to take you. And so that's what he, he, he did. At that betrayal, God's people were out of their resources. They had no more countries to run to. They had no more wealth to try to buy off the king of Assyria. So what did they do? They limped back to God. Finally, after years and years and multiple kings had come through and God giving them warning after warning, they went back to God. They didn't go because they wanted to. They went back to God because they had nowhere else to go. And how does the Lord respond? This is amazing. He accepts their repentance. The Lord welcomes them. And we're told that He rises up to save His people. And I want you to see this this morning. That God's graciousness extends even to half-hearted and delayed repentance. And maybe this morning you think, I've waited too long to go to the Lord. Surely He won't accept me now. But you have not waited too long. Go to the Lord right now. God accepts delayed repentance. And He accepts half-hearted repentance as well. Go to God. Now in these verses, there's another shift that you see. It's a shift in how God is treating His people, but it's... It's a shift in how the people see their circumstances as well. Uh, look, at, look at verses 2. You see this in 2 through 4, and then 5 and 6 is a second example of it. In verse 2, here's the shift that you see. The people finally do something important. They start to pray, and Isaiah records their prayer. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm, or that's another way of saying, be our warrior every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. They begin to pray. And that's when the shift occurs. And I want you to, everyone, I want everyone to look up at me as I say this. Everyone look up at me. Because I want you to see the posture is important. The people had been looking all around at their circumstances. They've been looking around saying, the Assyrians, are, the Assyrians are coming, the Assyrians are coming. What can we do? What can we do? When they finally stop and they look up to the Lord, everything changes. Then what do they see when they look up to the Lord? They pray for His grace. They look around at their circumstances 
And what do they see? Verse 3, at the tumultuous noise, the peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered. Your spoil is gathered. As the caterpillar gathers, as the locusts leap, it is leapt upon. And here's what he's saying. Whenever the people finally pray out to God, they look up to God and they look around at their circumstances. Their circumstances have completely changed. All of their toil, all of their hardship, all of the hard things that have been going on, a shift has occurred. And now the armies that were invading are armies for them to spoil or to take their spoils, to take all of their treasures. Same thing happens in in verse 5. The Lord is exalted. They're looking up to the Lord for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. And then they look around and they say, He will be the stability of your times, the abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. They look up to the Lord and they go, oh, you know what is my stability? You know what secures me today? It's not my wealth. It's not my strong king. It's not my ability to work hard. It's not my intelligence or my good look. What is my stability is the Lord. See, the people had been treasuring various things. They'd been treasuring their treasure. (laughs) their money, their bank account. They had been treasuring all of their resources, their ability to go make peace treaties with these other nations. When they finally look up to the Lord, they go, ah, finally, I get it. My security is the Lord because, the very end of verse 6, the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. That is true treasure. That is real treasure. Nothing in this world can satisfy or be your treasure or be your security. And only when you finally look up to God in repentance and say, I need you. Then you see that he is all you need. Here's the point. God responds to even our half-hearted repentance. And his response is to pour out his grace on his children to remind us that he is all that we need. And this does kind of seem backwards to our normal way of thinking. We tend to think, okay, I will go to God as soon as I know what the terms of the agreement are. I will go as long as I know what I'm getting myself into. So God, what are you going to give me for, for, for my repentance, for my coming to you? And God says, no, that's not how this works. You come to me right now with no terms, no negotiation. Come as you are right now. The hymn writer says it this way. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. If you wait until you're better or until you know the terms of the negotiation or the terms of the agreement. If you wait to come to God until you're good enough to do it, you will never come. Come now. Come to Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus in repentance Then you will see him be gracious to you. It's the first thing, God's response to repentance. Secondly, you see God's response to brokenness. You see this in verses 7 through 12. We need to, again, understand the situation the Judeans were in. They had waited to go to God. They waited and waited and waited and waited. And then the Assyrian army came through and they began to go through and demolish the countryside of Judah. Now, Jerusalem was this huge city and it had huge, massive walls. It was well fortified. It was well protected. King Hezekiah and all the people that were able to live in that city were protected. But again, all the countryside, all the little villages, all the little cities, they they weren't protected. King Hezekiah had sent out 
uh, uh, soldiers to go into these cities to protect them. But in facing the huge, massive Assyrian army, they couldn't do anything to protect them. And so what do they see? Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. What you see is strong men, soldiers weeping because their cities are in ruin. And the highways, all of the highways that had been that had led into Jerusalem that would have been full of travelers, they were all emptied because the, the roads had been destroyed by the Assyrian army. All the covenants are broken. All the peace treaties are broken. There's no hope for them. Cities are despised. There's no regard for man. That's what's happening in the cities. And then Isaiah turns his attention to the geography of Israel. And he says, Lebanon is confounded in verse 9. So that's Lebanon way in the north. And then he, he looks, he says, Sharon is like a desert. Sharon was this super, super fertile area of, of uh, the land and of Israel. And now it was a, a desert because the Assyrian army went through. And they had a particular habit of going through and sowing uh, salt into the, um, into the land as they went through to completely demolish the people. So Sharon is like a desert. Bashan and Carmel, uh, shake off their leaves. These are places to the north and to the south, all over the place. Here's what Isaiah sees. Cities in ruin, strong men weeping, and the city side, or the, the, the countryside is decimated. And you almost get this vision of Isaiah Begging King Hezekiah, saying, Hezekiah, come out and look at the destruction. Look at what's here. Come out of your inner chamber of your room. And that's what you find out is that Hezekiah went into, if you go back and read 2 Kings 18 and 19 again, Hezekiah had gone into his inner chamber and was hiding in fear, despising all the things that were happening. And it's almost like Isaiah is saying, Hezekiah, come out and see. And Hezekiah doesn't want to go out because he knows if he goes out, he's going to see the results of his bad political maneuvering. People wailing and crying, death and destruction. He's going to see the smoke rising to the heavens. And he's going to feel his own brokenness. He's going to know his failure. He doesn't want to feel his brokenness. He doesn't want to feel his failure. But you see, that's the exact point when you know your brokenness that Yahweh responds. Look at verse 10. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. After all that pain and turmoil, after all seems lost, that is the precise moment that Yahweh works. Isaiah gets Hezekiah out of his palace, but Isaiah, you can almost see, he keeps his eyes closed. He doesn't want to see, but Isaiah says, look, you're missing it. 2 Kings 19, 32-35 tells us what happened to the, the strong army of the Assyrians as they are encamping right outside of Jerusalem. He tells us what happened when the Lord arises to defend and fight for His people. In verse 35 it says this, And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, all these were dead bodies. How does the Lord respond to the brokenness of His people? He responds by rising up and showing His power in his might. We tend to think, well, in my brokenness, I don't want to express my brokenness because I'm going to feel so weak. Yes, you will, and that is a great place to be. Because in your weakness, you will see the power 
of the Lord. I have a friend from high school. Uh, he was a believer in Christ in high school. Uh, he went to college. He studied. Uh, something happened. He became an alcoholic. He ran and ran and ran as hard as he could away from Christ. His alcoholism caught up with him. He couldn't hold down a job. But he was super charming. He was a great guy and everybody loved him. And so he was able to charm his way into living with different friends, sleeping on the couch, sleeping in the spare room. And he, would, he went through all of his many friends. He would charm them so that he could stay with them until it just was obvious He's an alcoholic and there's nothing that can be done. He ended up sleeping under a bridge one night. He had nowhere else to go. It was raining on him and he was angry and mad. And you would think, well, that's as bad as it's going to get for him, but it wasn't. He was so angry and mad. He was talking to himself, cursing all the people in his life, blaming everyone else for all of his problems. And he was there just kind of talking to himself. And a homeless man walked up to him and was like, is everything all right, buddy? And he was like, no. And he began to tell this guy everything that was wrong and all these problems. And the homeless man had pity on my friend and gave him his only blanket. Now, when a homeless person gives you the only blanket he has, you've reached rock bottom. And my friend realized, and at that point, it's like the light went on. And he realized, I am broken. I have nothing in myself. I have nothing more that I can do. And he cried out to God. And God restored him. My friend, he's kind of made it his mission now to be as vulnerable and open and as broken as possible so that people see the Lord restores in brokenness. Do you realize your brokenness this morning? The Lord responds to it. He rises up to exalt himself in your life. But the thing is, We don't like to admit that we're broken. We don't like to admit that we are spiritually just like my friend. That's how all of us are. We're homeless, freezing cold with no resources of our own. You are broken. You maybe just haven't realized it yet. And here's what I want you to do. Take my word for it because I'm a homeless man as well. Offering you the blanket of Jesus Christ that says cover yourself with him. You are broken. I'm broken too. We have no resources in ourselves. All we have is Jesus Christ. Go to Him in your brokenness this morning. Last thing that we see is God's response to righteousness. In verses 13 through 24. Uh, There's an order to how things work in these passages. Last week we saw at the end of uh, chapter 32, the Lord was going to pour out His Spirit on His people. And then once He poured out His Spirit, everything changed. Since the Lord has poured out His Spirit now, and that's the proof, this is the proof, this chapter is the proof that the Lord poured out His Spirit on His people because now they're finally repenting. What do they do? Well, in verses 1-6, through they actually trusted in the Lord. You can go back and look at that. Verses 1-6 through in chapter 33, they trust in the Lord. Then they realize their brokenness. That's what we just saw. They trusted and they realized their brokenness. And that's the way things work. When you begin to trust in the Lord, you, you all honestly don't even know how bad you are. But the longer you know Him and the longer you trust Him, the more you recognize just how broken you actually are. And what happens after you recognize your brokenness? Well, righteousness actually follows after that. And in this section, you begin to talk about, and Isaiah begins to mention things like 
righteousness. It begins with the Lord's pouring out His Spirit. This is not works righteousness. It might seem like that. That's not what it is because the Lord pours out His Spirit and then God's people have faith. And then when they have faith, they recognize their brokenness. They repent of their sin and God does something else. He gives them the righteousness that they need. But notice what's going on in Jerusalem. After God has poured out His Spirit on some of the people, there are, in verse 14, the sinners in Zion are afraid. I should have said this in the early service. Whenever you read that word Zion, you should read it as the sinners in the church are afraid. Zion is the Old Testament church. The sinners in the church are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. In the Old Testament church of God's people, there are sinners and there are godless people. Guess what? There are sinners and godless people here today as well. And whenever the Lord pours out His Spirit and they realize that the Lord's presence is with His people, they begin to tremble in fear. And they ask this question in verse 14. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Because God is a consuming fire. Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? Who can stand in the presence of God? And the answer is given in verse 15. He who walks righteously and speaks upright, uprightly, who despises the gain of oppression, who shakes his hand lest they hold a bribe. And it goes on and on and on. And it says, who can stand in the presence of God? The righteous can stand. How do you get the righteousness that you need? God grants it to you by pouring out his spirit. That's why it's not works righteousness. This is not something that we do. This is not something that we earn. And what you find out at the end there in verse 16 is that, Because God has given this righteousness, even the righteous one is dependent on the Lord. He will dwell in the heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Even the righteous one is dependent upon the Lord. When the Lord pours out his spirit, he gives you his righteousness. You cannot be a Christian and also not be righteous. That doesn't mean perfect. But it means pursuing the righteousness of God, desiring righteousness, being transformed day by day into the image of Christ. And then in verses 17 through 24, you get a picture of what the Lord gives to his righteous ones. The righteous will see the king in his beauty. The righteous will rightly understand the terror and the deliverance the Lord has achieved for him. The righteous will enjoy the blessings of the Lord. And what are the blessings of the Lord? Well, in verse 21, what you find out is the ultimate blessing of the Lord is the Lord himself. But there the Lord in majesty will be for for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go nor majestic ship can pass. He says the Lord will be a refreshing, moving, living water. But it's a water where no warship will pass because the Lord protects us. That's what the Lord does. He gives His presence with His people. And He says, because His presence is with them, what what happens in verse 22? The Lord is our judge. Another word for ruler. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. But then in verse 23, Isaiah kind of says, okay, that's what's going to happen. But take stock of what you are like right now. And he's... He switches his metaphors. He uses a completely different picture. And he says, picture a sailboat. He says, this is what you are like. You are like a sailboat. Verse 23, your cords hang loose. Your ropes hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place. Or keep 
the sail spread out. You go, what's that all about? What's he saying? He's saying, this is what you're like. You're like a sailboat whose ropes are so frayed and weak that you can't put the sail up. You can't use the sail to sail. You know what happens if you have a sailboat that you can't sail? It's a worthless boat. It doesn't do anything for you. And he says, that's what you are like today. And in your worthlessness, in your inability to do anything for yourself like this sailboat, what happens? Then the prey and the spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. He says, you, when you recognize your inability to do anything for yourself, that's when the Lord accomplishes this great salvation for you. And he gives you the bounty that you don't deserve. So that even the lame person who can't move himself is able to enjoy the bounty of the Lord. And he closes in verse 24 by saying, And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. And it should say, I think, because the people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. The righteous of the Lord have been forgiven their sins. They have been forgiven all of their failures to the Lord. And what has the Lord done? He's given them everything that they need. Righteousness. He's picked them up from their brokenness. He has received their repentance. And he's given them himself. That's what we need this morning. We don't need anything else in this world. We need the Lord to give himself. We need to pray once again that the Lord would pour out his spirit. That we would have him and we wouldn't trust in ourselves, that we would see that we're just like a sailboat with ropes flapping in the wind, not doing anything for ourselves. And once we see that, the Lord gives us all that we need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this word today, and I pray that you would help us to see what we truly are, that we are broken people. Help us to see what our sin has really done to us, that we might trust in the Lord today. I pray that you would deliver us from our sin, pour out your spirit on us, make us a broken people that we might rely on the Lord and see you rise up to defend us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to close once again.